So Money episode 803, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Eric Roberge. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. It is the first Friday of November. Hope you had a good Halloween. Looking forward to this time of year, right? This is when we're almost at the end of the year. So that's a good thing, bad thing, I guess, depending on how much uh, you have left on your checklist, your to-do list. But I know for a lot of us, this means holiday shopping, family dinners, Thanksgiving, travel. It's a busy time of year. And so I think we got a lot of money questions on our minds, right? Like this is kind of an emotional time of year and your money issues can get very heightened and I want to be here for you. So be sure that you are taking advantage of the Ask Farnoosh Friday episodes. Go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh. You can leave a voicemail. You can text me your message. You can also go to Instagram and follow me there and send me your questions. I try to get people uh, squared away, you know, on the go and then save some of these questions for this episode, for the Friday episodes. Joining us today is a friend of the show, Eric Roberge. He is the founder of beyondyourhammock.com. He's a certified financial planner. We're so lucky to have him back. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me here. I feel like it's home now. Oh, well, that's a nice thing to say. I'm glad this does feel like your home. And big news for our audience who want more Eric and more of Eric's advice in their lives. You're launching a podcast. Tell us about it. I am. Yes. Uh, my wife and I actually do a lot of work together talking through what we do for our money and how other people can look at things from a different perspective and different than maybe societal norms typically lay out. And we write about it now and we wanted to bring that to life. So we're going to start a podcast uh, in, I think, soon. Um, and it's going to be beyond finances, which means like it's going to bring life and financial conversations together so we can use our money as a tool to really live a fantastic life. Wow. So you're really going above and beyond money. You're going to talk about relationships. What else? I think it's just a spider web of whatever comes from the money conversation. So it is relationships and money. It's living today and money and savings and investing and really bringing all of my CFP knowledge to real life in real conversations. So what made you want to do a podcast? Many things. I think it was just a different medium to start things off because again, we do a lot of writing now, but not so much uh, audio or video. And I think a podcast is a great way to start that conversation to bring I think my personality out more than it does come from writing and really just have people understand that I'm human too. And there are things that I do that aren't great about money. And I want to be able to share those things live with an audience. Um, And, you know, coming from the FinCon world, there's a lot of great podcasters out there and I've gotten a lot of tips from them. So I'm excited. Well, we're very excited. Congrats on that. You know, this is uh, the beginning of what's going to be a pretty stressful time of year, I think. I was just mentioning in the intro, Eric, that uh, you know these last couple of months of the year, we have a lot going on. And for a lot of reasons, whether it's deadlines, family obligations, uh, we have some spending in our futures and all of that can really add up and, and weigh us down. So question for you, 
what do your clients normally grapple with this time of year? Where is their headspace when it comes to money? What are you finding yourself helping your clients with a lot right now? I think it's the the age old focus on what you can control because my goal is to throughout the normal parts of the year give people a guide to be able to function in everyday life so that they have their savings plan set up they have their spending plan set up and then when we come into this part of the year we know that the cash flow situation is going to get juiced right we're going to spend more money and if we just stick to our plan Hopefully we plan for spending more money this time of year because it's not a surprise that the holidays are coming around. We know that's happening. Um, if we just stick to the plan, then everything should go smoothly. That doesn't happen, though, because we have emotions and other things that come into play. So I think it's, it's really just making sure that people keep a level head and focus on what they can control, focus on what they've been practicing all year um, and, and get through the holidays and enjoy it. Cool. So one of my tips for those of us out there who feel like, you know, it's just too much money, too much spending going on around the holidays. So many people, so many gifts. My family and I now, it's almost two years. I think maybe we did it last year. I can't remember. But definitely this year, we drew names out of a hat. And that really brought down our spending levels. I think we committed to $75 or $100 per person. I have two people to buy for. And it's it. That's it. Great done. I mean, we're going to get stuff for the children, but for the adults, we're limiting it to just names drawn out of a hat. And personally, I like this not just because it limits the spending, but I think it also allows for more focus on spending time together and less about like the frenzy that comes with what am I going to get this person? Are they going to like it? So just throwing that out there, maybe this is the year you you just pick a name out of a hat and call it a holiday. Let's move on to one of our questions here uh, from Mac, Mac Claus on Instagram, who wants to plan for the inevitable things that we don't like to think about, and that is death. And I know that, Eric, you're the planner with a capital P. And specifically, this question is about, should I have a will? Mac Claus is asking, you know, he says, I'm single. I have no debt. Do I need a will or she? I'm not sure if it's he or she. What do you think about that? Well, I think the the answer is it depends, as it does with most things. But when I hear, should I have a will, I think of, should I have an estate plan? And I think the answer to that is, yes, you should, regardless of how much you have in assets or debt or anything else. It's really important to make sure that you tell people, tell the court system where money should go through the will, but also that you have a healthcare park proxy which means that someone else can make medical decisions for you if you are incapacitated and have a durable power of attorney, which means that someone can make decisions for you from a financial side if you are incapacitated. Because there's a lot of times when you may still be around, you just can't make decisions. And if you don't have these things in place, no one else can have a say in the matter. And it's just up to doctors and banks to make those decisions for you. And... I know you're single and you're young. You're thinking uh, an estate plan. That sounds really fancy. And that sounds like I need a lot of money in the bank to, you know, really have that to qualify for that. But I think that, Eric, would you agree that that is a myth that it's just a fancy word, but at the end of the day, everyone needs an estate plan, i.e. a plan that discloses how they want their finances managed, their assets managed. If you have a home, if you have a car, if you have even like social media is an asset now, you know, all this information that we're keeping online, all this data, how's that going to be arranged? Uh, If you have savings, where is that going to go? 
there is this false sense that you have to have all these millions of dollars before you have an, a bona fide estate and therefore the need to have a will. But actually, it's a lot simpler than that, right? Yes, very much so. Uh, talking to other people, one, one financial planner told me, he said, it's not about the size of your estate. It's about how much you love your family. Because when you can provide a very clear understanding about what you're thinking about your assets and your health and, um, and your just general estate, um, people can then not have, they don't have to make up things or guess about what you wanted, which can add a significant amount of stress to people if they're trying to say, well, I think Eric wanted this thing, but I don't know. And if I say this and he didn't want that, then, you know, that whole conversation comes up. So clarifying things for people is what an estate plan can do for you. And I would just layer onto that. That's really good advice that although this person is single now, you know, and they're going to create this will, this plan that if and when they couple up or their life becomes a little bit more complex, they have uh, dependents or, you know, they um, get into a relationship, have children, that they would want to adjust the will, that your will is this living, breathing thing, which reminds me we need to update our will. <laughs> we haven't done so since our daughter was born. This is why I do the show. Uh, thanks for that reminder, Eric and my claws. So yeah, the show keeping me honest. I love that. All right. Next up is Tyler on Instagram. He has a question about where to park his emergency fund and his savings. In particular, he is saving up for a house down payment and he says he doesn't plan on touching this money for about five years at the soonest and then maybe go and buy this house. But he's torn between having a high interest savings versus a money market account. And he wants to know, is there a big difference? Is one better than the other? He says, I know there are some higher barriers to entry with some accounts and the transactions are limited to six per month, but... He says, I can't figure out which is a smarter option. Can you go wrong with either one? We're talking money market account or a high yield savings account. I don't think so. I think there's also, when, when people ask these questions, so much more comes into my head as far as what to think about. Um, but just specifically on his question, uh, when it comes to money market accounts versus savings accounts, both of them have restrictions on the transactions out of the account. So money markets, I think, are six. And I think six per month. And also savings accounts are six per month. So regardless of what type of account you use there, you have to limit the transactions, which should be fine because you're not supposed to take the money out. It's a savings account. Um, but when it comes to money market accounts versus money market funds, those are two different things. Money market accounts are FDIC insured through the bank. Money market funds may be SIPC insured, but that's not the same. Although they won't necessarily lose money, they could. So you just want to understand what you're actually getting yourself into when it comes to a money market. If you can find a savings account, 1.9% is on the higher end of interest rates right now. So if you can find an account, and there are many, if you go on to Google and search best savings rates, you're going to find Bankrate and NerdWallet and other lists that continually update on the best savings rates out there. It'll tell you how much you need to invest or put into the account to open it. A lot of them are $1. Some of them are $10,000. But you can find one for 1.9% and $1 opening. So there's no reason why you can't just start the savings account and push it in there. Um, there are other ways to do this, though. If it's five years, I mean, I would argue that you could actually invest it if it's more than five years down the road. I would also think about a certificate of deposit, a CD. If you're not tapping this money for a while and you're not making any withdrawals, 
a CD could be good for you. You lock in a rate for a certain period of time. Maybe it's 12 months, maybe it's two years. It could go up to five years. Behaviorally, I think this is a really helpful way to make sure that you do stick to your goal because you're really not encouraged to withdraw this money. And if you want to earn that rate, you have to keep the money invested for that period of time. I'm just looking at bank right now, bankrate.com, which is a great resource to look up rates. And I'm looking at CD rates for up to three years. And you can get from, let's see, almost 3%, 2.7. Um, there's a few 2.7. And then the minimum deposit is anywhere from $0 and up. So just putting that out there is another option. I just did this for myself. And I put some money into a CD because I didn't want too much cash sitting just in a bank account. And I agree, CDs can be great because they're offering better rates than they have in, in the past several months to a year. Um, the one challenge is that if you lock in a CD for, say, five years, and then interest rates go up in two to, say, 5%, you're missing out on that extra rate. So you just want to make sure that you identify a shorter period of time to lock in that CD money for so you don't miss out on higher rates down the road. That's a good point. So maybe, you know, do it for two years and then see what happens and then transfer it over to another CD that may be a little bit more um, advantageous in terms of its yield. But I think the bottom line, Tyler, is that you can't really go wrong. Just save it. You know, do your research as far as interest rates go and watch out for any other kinds of requirements that won't work for you, limited minimums or withdrawal limitations. But it sounds like you're just looking to park this cash, keep it out of your hands. And that's all you need sometimes, you know, to get you to your savings goals. Thanks for your question. I hope you get closer and closer to buying that property if that's what you desire. And I think the good news is that home prices are cooling so maybe you won't need as, as much money as you think when you're ready to make the purchase. I have found that New York prices are coming down. Where, what about you, Eric? You're up in Boston, right? Yes. They are hovering. Um, I think they're not going up as, as much as they were. I mean, they went up in, across the country. Home rates went up 14% last year versus rent rates at 4%. So definitely um, there's got to be some sort of peak coming. Who knows when that will be? Um, Five years from now, it's going to be a completely different scenario, though. All right. Another question from Instagram from Cass, who says, I'm currently investing primarily in myself. I uh, am in college and also flight school. I am 30 years old. She doesn't want to neglect opportunities to save for retirement and invest. So far, Eric, she's opened a Roth IRA and an IRA through her job. She feels good about her contributions there, but feels like she should do more. She's also signed up for apps like Acorns and Stash, which let you invest automatically. And, and here's the real question. She said, you know, I was surprised that I found an article that stated that Stash is not a smart move due to its expenses. And so not sure where to really be leveling up. She says, I have no debt. She really wanted to point that out. She's living off of her savings. And so I'm wondering, should I drop the issue as far as investing goes for the next year? She wonders. My initial thoughts uh, just on the stash question, Eric, and I've heard this before and some of these other apps that invest your money on the go, nominal amounts initially that uh, you know offer these sort of low fees, dollar a month, whatever, to get you started, that in the beginning, it can be relatively more expensive than working with an, a financial advisor because maybe they're charging you like a couple bucks a month or a dollar a month. And if you've only got like $500 in there, that's 
you know, percentage-wise, a pretty high higher percentage to invest your money than working with a financial advisor. But I'm still in support of these apps for those of us who just need the push to get started and get into the behavior of investing regularly. What do you think? I think there's, this is a great question and there's a couple pieces to it. The first of which is it's, it sounded like she was concerned about maybe falling behind because she was focusing on school right now. And I think that's really an important piece because if you're in your, I actually wrote an article about this at one point, if you're in your twenties and you are working and starting to save, that's great because you want to start early and the idea of compound returns will help you out significantly down the road. However, if the choice is, well, I could either save now or I could go to school or get more skills to help me get to a better job or one that I really feel passionate about that could earn me more money, then investing in yourself is extremely important, especially early on. So don't give that up just because you think you have to save right now. Um, but when you do realize that you're saving and you want to choose these different vehicles, um, as you said, Franush, the percentage of what you're spending on the cost of the program may be significant early on. So in the case of Stash, I think if you have under $5,000, then they charge $1 per month to keep you in the account. And if you only have $500 in that account, that's 2.4% of in fees. So that from a comparison to 1% for an advisor is more money um, from a percentage basis. But the most important thing to do is build the habit, get in the market into a diversified portfolio. If Stash or Acorns or whatever other app you find can help you do that when you otherwise would not have done it, then it's a win. And as long as you continue to put money in there and you hit that $5,000 mark, well, then it drops down to 0.25%. So it, it starts to reduce over time and it, and it grows your money. So I think it's good to go. Okay. Thanks for that, Eric. And good luck to you, Cass. Moving on to our voicemail inbox, we have a question here from Sarah. And Sarah has some questions about raising money for her company. Let's take a listen. Hey, Farnoosh. My name is Sarah. I live in Los Angeles and I am 28 years old. I recently started a new business. Um, we're about eight months in. Um, my business partner and I have been bootstrapping it. Um, but we are looking to raise capital so we can grow and we can sustain growth. Um, I have no idea where to even begin on something like this. Um, so I was curious if you had any tips or resources that you'd recommend. Um, also, we're looking into business credit, um, but I don't know how that affects your personal credit. So I was curious if you had any thoughts on that as well. Um, thank you so much for your amazing podcast. It's a part of my morning routine. You're awesome. Thanks so much. All right, Sarah, thank you so much. And congrats on starting your business. Wishing you all the best and good vibes. 28 and entrepreneuring it. Gotta love that. So Eric, her question is about raising money. And it sounds like she and her partner have done the good work of bootstrapping for some eight months. I think it's a good question. A lot of entrepreneurs arrive at a similar point wondering, should we be raising money from investors? Should we get a bank loan maybe? Uh, because we just feel that maybe we can't grow this on our own or we can't sustain the growth with the current cash flow. So how do you mitigate risk, right? Because there's a lot of risks when you potentially take on other people's money and put it into your business. And I will just start by saying, Sarah, that I have invested in a couple of businesses. And in each case, they were female entrepreneurs. 
they first did a friends and family raise. So they looked at their expenses. They looked at where they wanted to invest the money for the next year or two, just kind of short-term needs. And that's how they identified how much they needed to raise. It's not going to be millions of dollars necessarily. It could just be 50000 It could be 75000 It's enough to get you from point A to point B. And it's a manageable amount of money to raise from just your network without going to the big banks or the professional investors. And I think that you've done a really good job, Sarah, of putting your own skin in the game. That's extremely important for everyone listening, anyone out there who's starting a business. If you really want to attract investor dollars, you want to show that you have also invested in this business, that you believe in it and that you're putting some money on the line. Just like when you're getting a mortgage, the banks want to know, like, what's the down payment? And the bigger the down payment, usually the better the terms. So first, I would suggest a friends and family round of fundraising. You could do it on Kickstarter. You could just do it by Thanksgiving dinner, chatting with your rich uncle or rich aunt at the dinner table. Maybe you have previous colleagues who are now investing in businesses. I would suggest also, Sarah, that as a female entrepreneur, while it is true that still only a very small amount of venture capital dollars goes to female founders, unfortunately, I am seeing a, a rise, a trend in organizations and movements that are popping up to support female entrepreneurship, incubators, funds just for female startups, female founded startups. Rent the Runway, for example, has an incubator program. You can apply for it. They give you money plus counseling and coaching. I know this isn't maybe your forte, Eric, but you're an entrepreneur and I'm sure you know you've thought about some of the ways to raise money for yourself or maybe some of your clients that are coming to you that are business owners. Yeah, this is certainly something that's very familiar to me in essence because I went to Babson College, which is an entrepreneurial business school. So this is the kind of conversation that everybody had. Um, I just didn't have it much for me and certainly not when I started my business. Um, I didn't want to raise money. Um, I wanted to do it myself. And that's there's, there's a lot more questions for me than answers when it comes to this particular question. It's a great topic. Um, you covered a lot of it. So what I want to just ask her to ask herself is... You know, what, what type of business is it? What industry are you in? How big do you want to get? And do you want to maintain 100% of the control of the business decisions? Because the answers to the, some of those things are going to determine whether you bootstrap it, whether you get a loan, or whether you go out and get funding. Um, when you get a loan, you're going to add debt to your balance sheet, and that doesn't go away. When you go out and get funding, well, you lose some control potentially, but if your business goes under, you don't owe anybody anything because that's the risk of people investing in your business. So you got to think about a lot of different things. Uh, keeping it simple is best. Making sure that if you can bootstrap it because you don't need to explode all at once and it just might take a little bit more blood, sweat, and tears, that may be a good option too. That's a good point. When you start to accept other people's money, you have to be ready for a certain level of scrutiny into your company and how you're managing it. And there will be some investors that will be more demanding than others. They want to know how the money's being allocated specifically. They want updates. They want reports. Sometimes that's a good thing. You know, it uh, helps you to, <laughs> to make sure that you are also holding up your end of the bargain and everybody is on the same page. All right. One more question, Eric. We're going to go out to Instagram. Maria has a question about credit. She has multiple credit card accounts, store cards, bank credit cards. She wants to know, does it hurt to have multiple credit card accounts 
Or does it only matter that you pay your bills on time and the percentage of the limit that you use? She said that she has heard that it's recommended to use no more than 30% of a limit on a card at a given time. Well, you know, I spent a lot of my time <laughs> pouring through credit information. I uh, am a little obsessed with the intricacies of credit scores and all of that. And I would say that it doesn't really matter how many credit cards you have as a factor of your credit score. And your credit score actually likes to see that you have a variety of credit, of credit cards, maybe mortgage, a car loan, et cetera. The most important thing when it comes to your credit health is your payment activity specifically. Are you paying your bills on time? It's not the only factor. It's not the only thing that counts, but it's important. It's a big chunk of your credit score. It's like 35% of your FICO credit score is your bill payment history. After that, it is your debt to credit ratio, which is how much of a balance you're carrying on those cards at any given time relative to the limit on those cards. And it is true that you don't want to go above 30%. I will say too that the people in this country with the highest credit scores have a debt to credit ratio of less than 10%. The only thing I would say as far as how this may hurt you is if you are opening all of these cards within a short period of time. And it's the holidays coming up. A lot of stores will be insisting that we open up their store credit cards to get the discount. And it can be tempting. I've done it and I regretted it. I was in my 20s. I thought I wasn't doing any harm to my credit. But the problem is, is if you do this multiple times within a span of a week or a month, that all of those openings of all those card openings take on a hard inquiry, right? The bank or the lender, the creditor has to check your credit. And that's a hard inquiry. And every one of those uh, has a potential negative impact on your score. Multiple ones can really bring your, drag your score down. So just be aware of that. But, you know, Eric, a lot of people have this question, you know, is it okay that I have a dozen credit cards? And I would say it's not about quantity. It's about quality. That was really a great response. Frontiers, you know your stuff about this stuff for sure. Um, so Maria, go back and listen to that a couple times because there's so many good nuggets in there. Um, and she's right. The amount of credit cards doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, the more you have on paper, the better your credit score could get because you have, you're showing them that you have different types of use of your credit. And also you have potentially more credit, which means that your debt to credit ratio might go down as well. Um, and that kind of ties into your comment about the 30%, keeping your total balance under 30% of your cards is really good because it'll keep your credit in check. Uh, your credit score will appreciate you for doing that. Um, but really, when it comes down to it, just make sure that you keep track of whatever you open, that you don't have too many, that you start getting risk at, at risk of someone finding your card and, and, and you forgetting about it. And then there's a fraud. You know, there's, there's all kinds of bad news to come with opening your credit card. So don't open your credit cards to boost your score. Yes, open up a credit card because it's going to be a vehicle for you, a way to achieve your goals, whether that's to establish credit, buy a big ticket item, go on a vacation and pay it off uh, when that balance comes due in full. And that's about it. I hope this cleared up some confusion for you and others, Maria and Eric. My gosh, thank you so much for joining us. As always, I'm really excited for your new venture, this podcast with your wife. Tell us again how we can find you and where we can download this show. 
Well, you can find me on my website, www.beyondyourhammock.com. That's certainly going to have information about the podcast. Um, I don't know exactly where it's going to land, but it's probably going to be on iTunes. Uh, it's called Beyond Finances, and it's going to be my wife and I teaming up to have great conversations. Kaylee Roberge and Eric Roberge um, talking about money and life and just normal things that human beings deal with every day. Well, good luck and congratulations to you and Kelly. We will surely keep an eye out for your show. Thanks so much, Eric and everybody. I hope your weekend is so money. Money.